You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Have a seat. Goodness gracious, it's great to see you. Yes. You know, this morning is an illustration that if you're stubborn enough to keep trying, you'll eventually get it. That's right. For about 10 years, we've been trying to have an outdoor Easter service. And we would plan it, and then it would rain. And so we didn't get to do it. Last year, of course, Easter got COVIDed out. Okay, as far as the gathering part. The year before that, we decided we're not even going to try this year. It was a beautiful, sunshiny day, about 75 degrees. So coming out of this past year, we thought this would be a great and excellent way to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Let's just give it a shot. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for allowing us to do it. And thank you for coming. Now, you know that an Easter tradition that I don't see a lot of this morning is wearing an Easter hat, an Easter bonnet or Easter hat. And I'm such a traditional guy. You all know that, that I thought I would wear my Easter hat this morning, and then you didn't wear yours. What is going on with you people? In churches all over the globe, all over the world today, Christians are gathered to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to celebrate the empty tomb as they did when they first found that Jesus had been raised. And this morning in churches all over the world, some will talk about the evidences for the resurrection, and there are very many of them, not only biblical uh, evidences, but extra-biblical evidences of the resurrection. Some of them will be talking about the meaning of the resurrection. What does the resurrection actually mean, and why was Christ raised from the dead? And some will study intricately all of the events and all of the people that were involved in the Easter narrative. And all of those things are important. All of that is important information for us. All of them have something to add to our faith that Jesus Christ, in fact, rose from the dead. But this morning, (laughs) the non-traditionalist, we're going to take a different approach. We're not going to speak about the resurrection itself specifically. But we're going to go back beyond that and talk about why the resurrection even matters. Why does the resurrection even matter? We're going to talk about this morning the shadow and the substance. And I want you to get both of those in your mind, the shadow and the substance. If you stand on a sunny day, which today is not one of them, (laughs) but if you stand on a sunny day, you're going to have a shadow going some direction on the opposite side of the sun. And that shadow does not give a perfect picture of you, but it does give an outline. So you have the shadow, and then there is you, which is actually the substance. And when it comes to the resurrection, the Word of God does that farce. The Word gives us a shadow in the Old Testament, and then gives us the substance in the New Testament. It's a picture. And you see, the resurrection matters because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Last Friday night was Good Friday, when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But folks, if Christ wasn't crucified, then he couldn't be raised. There would be no Easter Sunday. 
And the Bible gives us this beautiful picture of a shadow of the crucifixion that actually gave the resurrection meaning and impact. And it is that shadow that I want this morning, Derek and I, to show you a picture of as, as the Old Testament gives it. And then look at the substance, which is the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then you will have a picture from the Old Testament all the way to the very cross and the empty tomb of why the empty tomb mattered. So let's look at it this morning. The question, first of all, there is in this in this picture and in this narrative, there is a spotless sacrifice. Now, first of all, we're going to go back to the book of Exodus. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 12 if you have them. If you have your phone, then go in your phone. But in Exodus chapter 12, what has happened is that the Hebrew people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 long years, doing the Pharaoh's work, doing his building projects and all of that. And you're familiar with the fact that God came to Charlton Heston I guess Moses, God came to Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to lead my people out and I want you to tell my people, the Hebrews, that I've chosen you to be the one that is going to lead them out. Now, God knew that Pharaoh wasn't going to be all that excited about letting all this free labor go. And so when Moses said that, Pharaoh said, not a chance, not on your life. And so God instituted what I like to refer to as an attitude adjustment program for Pharaoh. And it's called the Ten Plagues. In Exodus, the ten plagues were God's attitude adjustment to get Pharaoh, bring him to that point to do what God ultimately was going to make happen. And God promised Moses, in fact, he said, he said when this is over with, when this program is over here, not only is Pharaoh going to let my people go, he's going to beg you to leave and he'll tell you to take anything you want out of Egypt. Just get out of here and get gone as quick as you can. The first nine plagues didn't quite get it done. Each time... Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to, not going to let them go. Or he would sometimes say, yeah, I will, and then he'd change his mind. And so the first nine plagues just quite didn't get it go. He still held on. But it was that tenth one. It was that last plague that broke his back and got it done. And this plague is the shadow of the substance. This, in this plague, we see the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it was the plague of the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. God told them, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come through tonight. And the death, the firstborn of all of Egypt are going to die. But I'm going to protect you because you're my people. And God knew he had to protect that people in order to bring them to the point, ultimately when the Savior of the world was going to be born, which was Jesus. And so he said, take a, an unblemished lamb and sacrifice that lamb. And then put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts over your houses. And tonight when I come through Egypt, I will see that blood over that house. And I will know that you've done what I told you to do. And I will pass over that household and all who are in it will be safe. That's the first Passover. And Jewish people every year since that time have celebrated the Passover. To remember when God with the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb protected his people in Egypt so long ago. But you see what that really is, that's just a shadow. It's a shadow of the substance that was going to come on the cross outside of Jerusalem when Jesus was nailed to a cross. He would be the fulfillment of that picture. He would be the fulfillment of that shadow. He would in fact be the substance of the first Passover. 
When Jesus came on the scene, you remember John the baptizer. People say, you know, Baptists have been all the time since back in Jesus. They said, John the Baptist. Well, that, he wasn't the first Baptist. John was a baptizer. He called people to repentance. It says, show your repentance with your outward expression of baptism. But John looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. John said, he's finally here. That picture that was given to us so long ago in Exodus 12 has finally been fulfilled. He looked at Jesus and he said he knew that Jesus was going to fulfill the shadow, that Jesus was going to be the substance. And so there are two lambs in the Bible that are very, very important. There's the shadow lamb of the first Passover, and there is the substance lamb of the last Passover, Jesus on the cross. Now notice, the shadow lamb reflected the final lamb that was to come, the substance, in three very important ways. And these are not by accident. God gave these images in the Old Testament so that we would once again know what the lamb of God was going to be doing on the cross so many hundreds of years later. First of all, there is the excellence that God required of this sacrificial lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, God told the Hebrews that this lamb that they were going to sacrifice, he had to have no blemish. Okay, so when you looked at this lamb outside, you couldn't just pick any lamb out of the flock. God said, go through the flock and find a lamb that has no external blemishes. In other words, this lamb couldn't have any spots, couldn't have any wonky eyes. I'm a little bit insulted by that, but couldn't have any wonky eyes, couldn't have one eye, you know, put out, couldn't have any floppy ears. I got all this stuff. I got floppy ears and one eye. I couldn't have been the Passover lamb. No, this lamb had to be an unblemished lamb. And God is establishing a principle right there about the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus. That what was going to happen on the cross, folks, that makes the resurrection mean something, is it was going to be the unblemished who was going to be dying for the blemished. You see, that unblemished Lamb was, was dying, was going to give His life for what? Blemished people. They were not perfect people. So there needed to be a sacrifice that was even better than they were. And so also when the substance came, Jesus had to be like an unblemished lamb. He had to have no spot, the scripture says, no wrinkle of sin. Did you know that when Jesus was physically born onto this earth, he was the only person in human history ever to be born without a sin nature? You say, well, what about Adam? Adam wasn't born. Adam was created by God without a sin nature. And since that time, up until the time of Jesus, there had been no man or woman ever born on earth that did not have a sin nature. But Jesus was born without a sin nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 22 tells us that we are all born with an inherited nature that pushes us to rebel against God because our physical father, Adam, passed that sin nature down to each and every one of us. And so God, when he prepared this time for this final Lamb of God on the cross, he bypassed the normal way that babies are born. And we know how that happens, right? So we don't need to discuss that. That's for another class. He bypassed that way. And Jesus did not have a human father. Therefore, Jesus did not inherit that sin nature. And then Jesus acted out what Adam didn't do. Adam chose to rebel against God. Jesus chose to perfectly obey the will of the Father. He lived that life, the scripture says, of perfect sinlessness, of perfect obedience to the Father. And when the crowds, remember when Jesus was arrested, 
And Jesus was taken before Pontius Pilate because the religious leaders wanted Jesus to be crucified. And they're, they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate asked that question, why? Why? What has he done? And then he says, I find no fault in him. Pilate did not even understand. He did not even know the significance of what he was saying. He was referring to the fact that there was no fault that he could find in Jesus that caused him to suffer the death penalty of crucifixion by the Roman Empire. But even without knowing it, he was speaking a prophetic truth that there was no fault in Jesus. So on the cross, Jesus was that unblemished lamb, that unblemished sacrifice being offered for us who are the blemished. Is there anybody here that doesn't have a wonky eye or a floppy ear in spiritual terms? <laughs> I don't think so. So we are all blemished, and we all therefore need an unblemished sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that what God did on the cross is He made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to take upon Himself sin in order that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. Isn't that great? And so when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, it was the lamb of substance of which the lamb of shadow so many hundreds of years before had given a picture. This was the real lamb. This was a perfect sacrifice, an excellent sacrifice. But second of all, there is the extent of the lamb's sacrifice. In Exodus 12, speaking of the shadow, verse 8 God gave more instructions. He said, not only do you put the blood of this lamb over your doorpost, but when you have sacrificed this lamb, when you have eaten it, when you have killed it, then you must roast it and you must eat it and eat all of it. How much of the lamb did they eat? All of it. That doesn't sound real appetizing, does it? And it probably wasn't even to the people in Egypt that night. But God said that because he was giving a very, very specific picture in this shadow of what was going to happen in the substance. You see, they not only had to sacrifice this lamb, they had to internalize this lamb. God said, it's not enough just to sacrifice this lamb. Then I want you to eat the lamb and I want you to eat every bit of this sacrificial lamb. Internalize it. How much of it? Every bit of it. Man, that's strange. <laughs> that is just strange. I never met an animal that I wanted to eat all of. I've met a lot of animals I wanted to eat. But I never want, met one that I wanted to eat all of it. And I'm sure they felt the same way. Well, you see, why is this happening? Because God is giving a picture in the shadow of what the substance is going to be like. And Jesus gave us that interesting image when he gathered with those disciples on that last night, that Passover meal that he had with them, in fact, the very night that they were going to arrest him and he was going to be taken to a cross the next day and crucified, at that last Passover meal that Jesus had with the disciples. And in that image, in that time, Jesus gave them a picture that stands today. He said of the bread, as he, took, as he broke the bread, he said, take and eat, for this is my body. And then he took the cup. And he passed it around and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant. Now understand something. This is a picture of the shadow lamb in Exodus 
being consumed, all of him, internalized, not just sacrificed, but then taken in and physically consumed. And Jesus is giving a picture of that first Passover lamb and the last Passover lamb. Jesus said, you must internalize me. You must take all of me, all of my body, and all of my blood. Now listen, folks. Jesus isn't just an appetizer. <laughs> Jesus is the meal. That's right. He is the whole meal. Amen. And you can't take just a part of Jesus any more than they could have taken just a part of that shadow lamb in Exodus. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be mine, you're going to have to take all of me or none of me. Did you hear that? You have to take all of Jesus or you get none of him. You can't say, well, I'll take that forgiveness part. I like that forgiveness part. That feels pretty darn good. But I don't want none of that obedience stuff because, you see, I really want to live my life the way that I want to live my life. And Jesus says then, you cannot be a part of me. For you must eat all of me. You must internalize all of me. So you see, Jesus didn't die, folks, so we can live our lives. Jesus died so he can live his life through us. And if he has not come into you, if you've not internalized everything of him and everything that is about him, then he cannot and he is not living through you. You see, there's this excellence of the sacrifice seen in the shadow. It had to be an unblemished, and Jesus was a sinless Lamb of God on the cross. There is the extent of this sacrifice. What do we do with this sacrifice? You internalize every single bit of it. Not one morsel is left. And when you come to faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean you're just tacking Jesus onto your life, that you're just getting a little forgiveness so you can go do what you want to do. You must internalize him. You must take all of Jesus. The excellence and the extent. And thirdly, there is the exclusiveness of the sacrifice. On that last night in Egypt, who was this lamb that was being sacrificed for? Who did this lamb save? Now get this. This lamb was a sufficient sacrifice only for those who acted in faith. And did what God said. What is the definition of faith? Taking? After 37 years, I love it when they repeat it back. They got that. If you don't get anything out of 37 years of my teaching, if you get that, you've got that. Faith is not some magic key by which you get all the goodies that you want. Faith is taking God at his word. You know, 37 years under your teaching, that's, that's almost the amount of time Israel spill, spent in the wilderness. <laughs> 40 years. That means i got to hang on here yeah. at least three more, three years. more years. I mean, I've given you the title that gets you're, all the junk. That also means you're not getting to see the, the promised land. Either. <laughs> we're, we're gonna, you're going to get them right to the edge. And then I'm Moses and you're no! You're going to take them on in. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If I'd have realized all these images, I wouldn't have done it. It's the shadow and the substance, man. The Come, on. <laughs> Come on now. I am John the baptizer. <laughs> I must decrease and he no, must increase. No, no, no. Oh my goodness gracious. We're we're bordering on heresy here. <laughs> we better be very very careful. No. The blood was sufficient and the sacrifice for sufficient only for those who actually obeyed God, took him at his word, and they applied the blood to their door. Think about this, folks. God told him to sacrifice a lamb, but that's not all he told him. 
So if they'd only done part of it, if they'd only sacrificed a lamb, not one of them would have been saved. The, God would not have passed over that house that night. The death of the firstborn in every household of Hebrews, of the Hebrew people, would have died. It wasn't enough just to sacrifice the lamb. They had to take God at his word and apply the blood of the lamb to their doorpost, of their house, to their entirety. You see, the folks, the same is true with Jesus. It isn't the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that saves us. The blood of Jesus is only sufficient for those who act in faith and apply the blood of Christ to your life in faith. To take Jesus, to internalize all of who Jesus is. And when you apply that sacrificial blood, it is redeeming blood that is given to your life. Now here's the question, have you done that? You're almost at church on Easter Sunday morning. The building's over there, but let's just call this church. You're at church on Easter Sunday morning. You know what that means? Diddly squat. <laughs> That's a term I learned in Hebrew in graduate school, folks. You have to go to graduate school to learn to talk like that. It means absolutely nothing. The cross of Jesus means is valueless until you apply that redeeming blood of the Savior unto your life. In, in faith. You get it? There's that sacrifice. There's that excellent sacrifice. That's, that sacrifice that must be totally taken in. And then second, and I'm fixing to turn it over to Moses here in a moment. Is this sufficient sacrifice? Now the business of sacrificing is kind of messy business, right? That's messy business. Here's the question. Why did God choose this way? Why sacrifice an innocent animal? Why did God do it this way? I, th I think, I, I know, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He could do it any way he wanted to. He could say, tie a yellow ribbon. <laughs> Don't you dare sing that song. <laughs> he could have done a million other things. It would have said, okay, if you do that, then I'll know and I'll pass over. Because in this sacrifice, he is establishing of what the substance is going to be. Two principles. I'm going to give you one, and then I'm going to turn the rest of the time over to Derek. Two key principles being established here. The principle, first of all, of the significance of blood in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the Scripture says, All things are cleansed by blood, and without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Now, we could go deeper into this, but in the Scripture says that the life is in the blood. And so if a life is going to be saved by another life, then it's going to come by the blood of that life that is sacrificed. And the, blood, the reason blood was required is because there were no innocent people in Egypt that night. Not the Egyptians... Not the Hebrews. There was not one innocent person there. Everyone was guilty before God. So if anyone was going to be saved that night, there had to be blood that was shed. There had to be innocent blood that would be shed in order to cover the lack of innocence of everyone that was there. And when they applied that blood of the sacrificial lamb, then that was the perfect blood, the unblemished blood that was covering the blemishes and the sin of these pictures. And, and that's a picture of Jesus. 
another picture of Jesus, the lamb of substance, the final lamb. And it's still true because the scripture says all of us are guilty. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are innocent any more than the Hebrew people or even the Egyptians. Do you know that if one of the Egyptians had heard what the Hebrew God had said to his people, if they had done that, one of the Egyptians, if they had sacrificed an unblemished lamb and they'd put the blood of that lamb over their doorposts, even the Egyptians would have been saved. Because you see, salvation doesn't come by who you are or what your heritage is. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes when you take the eternal God at his word and you obey him. And when anyone applies the blood, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1. Know this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, unblemished blood. The shadow for the Hebrews, the substance for us. That you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb here's this Passover image right as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Jesus Christ the first principle is the significance of blood the second principle is the substitutionary value of this blood lead us on that is right the blood is not only significant but it is substitutionary now what do I mean by that what I mean is that it's not the blood that is really required by God. It is the blood that is put forth in substitution for the blood that is required by God. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever prescribe the shedding of innocent blood. You won't find it. In fact, you'll find the exact opposite. In the Old Testament, God is very serious about the preservation of innocent blood. Let me give you an example. All of you who are at least remotely familiar with the Bible uh, know of a character named Noah, correct? had a very large ark that we sometimes just call a boat, okay, all the animals. You remember him. In Genesis 9, right after Noah gets off the ark, all of the animals run free. He's been on the ark for 150 days. Everyone in the world has died from this catastrophic flood. The whole world is shaken up, and God comes to Noah, and he says to him, by the way, all of those animals that you've been taking care of for the last 150 years, you can eat them now. <laughs> Right, like up to this point, we were only allowed to eat plants, and now meat is on the menu. This is one of the reasons why, just as a side note, I've always contended that Noah, of all people in the Bible, is someone who needs a freedom group more than anyone else. <laughs> because like in his lifetime, everyone he knew died from drowning. He was trapped on a boat for five months with his family. Uh, the animals he's cared for for 150 days come off the boat. They're now terrified of him, and God is like, eat them. That freedom group written all over that, right? I mean, this is just... But here's why this passage matters, because in the very middle of this whole exchange, God says, you can now shed the blood of animals, but he's very quick to give a stark warning about the shedding of human blood. In Genesis 9, 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, kill all the animals you want, Noah, but if you kill another human being, your life will be required from. Now, that's not just here. This is all over Scripture. Exodus 21, 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. 
Leviticus 24, 17, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. Even Jesus himself recognized this, this law of God, this binding law of God. In Matthew 26, 52, as he's being arrested, if you remember, Peter is quick to pull the sword out and he cuts the ear off the guard's uh, the guard's side of his head, right? And Jesus comes to him and he says, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword perish by the sword. Up to this point, this guard hasn't actually done really anything wrong. And Peter's just cutting his ear off, right? Jesus is like, hold on. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hold on a minute. God is very serious about the shedding of human blood. Now, this is a problem for us, isn't it? Why? Because if it is true that without this shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin, and it's also true that God is very particular about the shedding of human blood. How do we receive forgiveness? And the answer is by substitution, by substitutionary blood. And this has been the case since the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, right after the curse, when the first man and woman fall for the very first time and God curses them and, and the serpent is cursed, right after that, Genesis 3 verse 21, God says, the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, that's a quick passage that you read real fast and move on. But if you sit and think about this for a moment, the Lord had to slay an animal in order for the sin of Adam and Eve to be covered. It's the first time this ever happens. A substitution. A substitute was needed and God provided. When you go further on in Genesis the great patriarch Abraham is told by God to bring Isaac, his son, his only son, his firstborn to, not his only, but his firstborn to, <laughs> to this mountain where he's going to sacrifice him. And he gets all the way up to the top and he has the knife. In fact, later on in the New Testament, we're told that he had already sacrificed his son in his heart. He had already committed to do this, but God stops him and provides a ram caught in the thicket. He provides a substitute to cover for that sacrifice. In Egypt, God prepared to send this angel of death that James talked about, this 10th plague, that every firstborn in Egypt would die as a result of this plague. And God told them, put blood on your doorpost, but not your blood. He doesn't require their blood. Mm -hmm. He gives them a substitute, That's an right. unblemished, innocent lamb. And folks, for us, the actual substance of this shadow, Jesus on the cross, sheds his blood for our sin. And, and we have to understand, we have to always come back to and be reminded of the reality that that should have been our blood on the cross. Right. It should have been us hanging on the cross. We should have been required to pay it, but God provides a substitute. Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want you to think for a moment, okay? The worst thing you've ever done. It's not a fun memory. You probably. don't want to know. The worst thing you've ever done. The thing that you would never tell anybody. The thing that you will go to your grave with. That you would never share. The, the darkest thing that you've ever participated in. That moment is the moment that Christ died for you. That's the moment when he laid down his life. For that version of you. Not the good version, not the Sunday morning at church version, not the posting Bible verses on Facebook version, <laughs> the version of you that's doing the worst thing that you have ever done, that is the version of you that Jesus lays his life down for while you are still in sin, in your place. 
as a substitute. It's why on the night of his betrayal, when they were observing that Passover meal that Jesus or that James talked about, he, they're remembering what God has done for the Israelites. Jesus breaks the bread and he says, this is my body given for who? You mm -hmm. as a substitute. This is my blood poured out for who? For you as a substitute. His, his blood is significant. There's no doubt about that. But folks, if it's not a substitute, then we all still stand condemned. Right. If it's not put in our place, we still stand condemned. We have the principle of significant blood and of substitutionary blood. That takes us to our, our third point, a sufficient sacrifice. Jesus is the substance of this sufficient sacrifice in Exodus. Now, apart from the blood being significant, like James just talked about, the whole thing is significant. And we don't have time to talk about all of it. It would take a long time to unpack all the significant parts of it. But, but here's part of what made it so significant is not only was that sacrifice in Exodus on Passover a sacrifice, but it was a sign to the people for something that God was going to do in the future as well. Three ways it served as a sign. One, it was a sign of security. Can you imagine for a moment what it must have been like that night in Egypt? It must have been, I mean, the firstborn of every family dying. It must have been terrible. In fact, God describes what it's going to be like to Moses in Exodus. Exodus eleven six. God says to him, Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all of the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. In other words, what God is saying to Moses is that this night is going to be so excruciating, so devastating, that there has never been a day as bad as it, and there will never be another day as bad as it was. And even as horrible as it was going to be, God also wanted to remind his people, but not so for you. Not so for you. You will be secure. Have no fear. This is what he says, verse 7. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, in the midst of all of the fear and death and misery and devastation, God does not want his people to be afraid. He wants them to be secure. And so he instructs them to put this blood on their doorpost so that when they see it, when they see the blood on the doorpost, it serves as a sign of security that God will not bring harm to us. Later in Exodus 12, 13, it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. He goes on to say, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall or destroy you. It's a sign not only for their security, but it's a sign for God as well. A sign for God to see and pass over them a sign for them to find security in his passing. And folks, this is what we have in the substance as well, even greater, Jesus' blood. When you are frightened, where do you look? Where do you turn? The blood of Jesus. When you feel fear or doubt, when you're unsure about something, where do you look? You look to the blood of Jesus. It's a sign not only for now, in the present, as you're walking through this life, no matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter what difficult circumstance you're in, no matter what you're feeling inwardly as a child of God, you know that the blood of Jesus marked over your life serves as a sign of security for you that God will not abandon you. But check this out. It's a sign for the future as well. 
I love this. In the book of Revelation, we learn that the world gets a lot worse. A great tribulation occurs. Several judgments are poured out. Many of the judgments, interestingly enough, mirror the judgments in Exodus, in Egypt. It's funny, we're talking this morning about the the shadow and the substance, the shadow in the Passover, the substance on the cross, but there are actually several shadows and substances throughout the book of Revelation and Exodus. Let me give you a few examples. In, In Revelation 16, we learn of seven plagues that are poured out onto the world. Seven bowls is what they're called. They're being poured out onto the world. The first bowl in Revelation will include harmful and painful sores on people on the earth. This mirrors the plague of boils in Exodus 9, 8 through 12. It's the same thing God did in in Egypt all those years ago. The second and third bowls, the water turns to blood. That sounds a lot like the water turning to blood in Exodus 8, 17 through 24. The fourth and fifth bowls, the plagues of the skies, where the skies turn to darkness and the sun is covered. This mirrors Exodus 10, 21 through 23, where God tells Moses to stretch out his hand and darkness will fall all over Egypt. The sixth bowl, where three harmful spirits come, and it says that they appear like frogs, and they're performing signs and wonders. They mimic the magicians, the court magicians in Pharaoh's court, and the frogs, the plague of frogs, that are, they're coming up out of the Nile and into Egypt. There's lots of this shadow substance stuff happening in Exodus and in this final time. And, And so in all the bad things that are happening in Egypt, the blood of the lamb that marks the doorposts of the home serves as a sign of security for those are in it that God will not harm them. Interestingly enough, when we get to Revelation, the mark of the lamb on the people of God in Revelation 7 serves as security for them that no, none of these plagues will harm you. None of this will, will affect you. You see, Jesus' blood is a sign of security not only for now, but for all future generations of God's people. Amen. Let me give you a truth, and this is woven through the fabric of all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament and into the the last things. God does not remove his people from hardship. He secures them through it. Amen. You need to understand that, people of God. You may be going through a hardship right now. This whole last year has been a hardship for a lot of us. And I want you to understand that God... God is not in the business. You you never see him doing this in in the Bible. You never see him removing people from hardship. But what you find is him securing us throughout it. Amen. We have protection. The blood is not only a sign of security, it's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment on Pharaoh. During this time in Egypt, Pharaoh was seen as a god. He carried himself as a god. The people of Egypt worshipped him. And so this Passover sacrifice was not only a sign of security for the people of of God, but it was actually a sign of judgment on all of those false gods and those people who worship the false gods. Throughout Exodus, Pharaoh doesn't just shut Moses down. He's smarter than that because he realizes Moses can do some things that my people can't do. And so it worries him. So so he, throughout the, the, the story, you find Pharaoh actually trying to negotiate with Moses a little bit. There are four instances where this happens. Exodus 8.25 is the first one. This is after the third plague. Pharaoh comes to Moses and he says, listen, go and sacrifice your God. Go and sacrifice Yahweh. Just do it within the land. Don't leave Egypt, in other words. You can have your God, but stay here. (laughs) Stay in Egypt. It's great here. What is there not to love? (laughs) Why leave? (laughs) Yeah. Work. Work, exactly. Moses says, no, we must leave Egypt and go three days into the wilderness. He doesn't budge. A few verses later, 
Exodus 8.28, Pharaoh follows that. He says, I will let you go and sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, only don't go very far. <laughs> don't go three days. Maybe go three hours, right? Three hours from here is what? Like Austin, Texas. Oh, no, we wouldn't want to do that. The real dark lands, yes, where real depravity occurs. Yeah, don't, don't, you, you can go away. You can leave Egypt, but don't go too far. Moses says, no, we are going to go three days as the Lord commanded. Later on in Exodus 10.10, 10, this is after the plague of locusts, Pharaoh comes to Moses and he says, okay, fine, go, take the adults, go on your three-day journey, but just leave your children in Egypt. Now, all the moms are like, this doesn't sound like a bad idea. <laughs> For a while. This sounds like a, a little vacay, right? Uh, Moses says, no, everyone is going. This is a family vacation. <laughs> Exodus 10, verse 24, after more plagues occur, Pharaoh says, I give in. All of you can go. Take your children. Just leave your flocks and your herds here in <laughs> Egypt. Exodus 10, 26, Moses says, I love this. This is great. Not a hoof will be left behind. <laughs> not a hoof. That's in the Bible. Read it. I'm not making that up. He literally says it. Not a hoof will be left behind. Now, do you see the progression here? What is, what is Pharaoh trying to do? First, it's, hey, don't leave Egypt. And next, it's, don't, just don't go too far. And next, it's, leave your children here. And, and then next, it's, leave your livestock here. In other words, don't completely abandon us. Keep one foot inside. Don't fully walk away. This is what all false gods want of you as well. You can follow Jesus, but don't leave all this behind. Look, you can have Jesus and the other stuff too, right? Mm -hmm. You can be a Christian and have a little fun. You don't need to leave. You don't need to turn your back on all of that. Why can't you do both? Let's compromise a little bit here. Whether it's the false god of success whether it's the false god of power and prestige, whether it's the false god of lust, maybe it's pornography, whatever it is, they all want one of your feet in the door so that they can have their power on you. That's right. So that you'll keep coming back. And the Passover breaks those false gods. It is a sign of judgment on those false gods. It breaks Pharaoh. After the 10th plague, Pharaoh isn't in a negotiating mood anymore. <laughs> He's like, get out of Egypt and go now. <laughs> and please don't come back. Now, of course, he has a little change of heart. He goes after him. That doesn't work out for him either. But you get the point. It breaks him. Take whatever you want. Take whatever you want, yeah. <laughs> it's a sign of security. It's a sign of judgment. And last but not least, we're going to end here. It's a sign of faith for the people. This act, this Passover sacrifice, required faith for the people. Putting blood, sacrificing an unblemished lamb, eating the entire lamb, taking the blood and putting it on the doorpost required a little bit of faith, didn't it? Mm -hmm. What if this whole thing doesn't work out? What if it's all a hoax? What if God doesn't show up? How do we explain ourselves? There's blood all over our doors. And how, what do we, I mean, this was a sign. The blood represented a devotion to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. It was, a, it was an expression of rejection against Pharaoh. When the sun rose and there was blood everywhere and there was the sacrifice that was done, how would the people explain themselves if God did not show up? It wasn't a private affair. Everyone could see the blood. It was public. It was out in the open. And folks, this is what God calls us to as well. Not only in the shadow, 
-hmm. But in the substance, a public confession, a public proclamation, living out your faith publicly. Listen, last year, this last year, thinking back over it, and just as we're worshiping, you know, I, it's very emotional for me because as we're worshiping, I'm just thinking a year ago, we were at home watching a video that we recorded midweek, and there was not a single person in that building on the most important day of the year for us as Christians. And throughout this year, it was just like one thing after another, after another, after another. And, and, and then even as we started opening back up and, and people started coming and the numbers have been increasing, but it's nothing like what it's been. And there's been people that we haven't seen for over a year. And as pastors, we begin to wonder, are we ever going to see those people again? Or, or did this just devastate us this badly? It's been difficult. And so it, this weekend has been life-giving for me. I don't know about you, but it's been mm-hmm. life-giving for me. Sure. Friday night... Seeing life groups out here grilling on the parking lot two hours before we do a, a, a Lord's Supper night of worship for Good Friday, worshiping with God's people, worshiping here this morning, hearing the children laugh and, and, and scream and have fun on the bounce houses, seeing people be baptized That's right. in a public setting. And so here's what I want to put forth to you today, is that after this message, if you are right now thinking to yourself, I want that. I want to be a part of this. I want that. I want to, I want to join this. I, I need this in my life. That's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. And so in a moment, Kelsey and the worship team are going to come back up here and they're going to lead us in one final song. And I'm going to, I want to give you the opportunity. We don't do this often, but I want to give you the opportunity right now. If you are a person who feels led, convicted to come up, explore, hey, what do I need to do to give my life to Jesus? There's going to be several of us up front here, several of our elders. I will be up there. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. This morning as is, is as if the Holy Spirit is saying to us, City on a Hill, I am not done here. That's right. I am not done yet. There's still more work to be done. There's still more lives to be transformed at City on a Hill. I am still drawing my people here. There are still lives that need the gospel. He's not finished with us. That's right. He's not finished with us. Amen. And we're excited about that. And I want you to know that if you're on the fence about it, but you feel that tug, you feel that, man, this is, I know this is really what I need to do, it is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that. Amen. We believe the Bible here. We believe it with all of our heart, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe that he was raised from the dead, God will save you. God will apply the blood of the lamb over your life as a sign of security, not as a sign of judgment, mm-hmm. that you will be brought forth into new life, that you'll find peace, no more running, no more hiding. No more secrets, no more shame. Jesus pays it all for you. But you have to walk in faith. You have to respond in faith, in obedience. And so as they come up, as I pray, if you feel it, today is the day. The scripture says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your heart. Respond. He's drawing you in. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you, we praise you, we stand in awe of you, that so many years ago you set up as a shadow the things that you would do ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ. 
And that on the cross, through that precious, innocent, spotless blood, we find redemption, we find forgiveness, we find freedom, we find hope, we find peace, and it is everlasting, Lord. And I pray for all those this morning who have found that, that they would be reminded of the glory that you have and that you bestow onto us as your children, sons and daughters adopted by you. I pray for those this morning who do not know Jesus, but maybe feeling that slow nudge to come up, to surrender, to confess, to believe with their heart, and to find redemption. Lord, we desire that for them. We stand with them. It could be the new, a new day for a new life. Your, your scripture says that if, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Lord, we pray for new creation this morning. For lives to be born again and transformed by the power of your gospel. We give you this time. We honor you. We thank you. You and you alone, nothing else. You and you alone are worthy of our hearts and our praise. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.